Hi there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to the Living the Sky Life podcast. I'm a very tired and oftentimes overwhelmed autism warrior mom who has navigated the ups and downs of this puzzling disorder for 16 years and counting. My hope when creating this podcast was that it would serve as a vessel for connecting families with special needs children so we may share experiences and resources. But even more importantly, I want to create a community of support for one another through the tough times, which we know there can be many, and to celebrate the achievement of milestones, big and small, of our amazing kids. So thanks again for joining me on this journey and for tuning in for this episode of Living the Sky Life. Today I have the distinct pleasure of talking to yet another warrior mom about all things sensory processing disorder. Rebecca Duvall-Scott is an accomplished writer and the proud recipient of numerous awards throughout her educational career at local, county, and state levels. She was awarded the Horrigan Scholarship at Bellarmine University, where she graduated with a bachelor's in English. She considered herself a fiction writer, but when her son was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder and she began to blog about her ever-evolving research and his treatment plan, a love for helping others through her nonfiction writing was ignited. Sensational Kids, Sensational Families is her new book, and it actually came out for purchase on March 9th, so head to Amazon and pick up a copy of her phenomenal book. Um, That book took root in her heart, and it was a self-help memoir for special needs families. Rebecca lives uh, with her husband, Eric, and their two children, Annabelle and Jacob, in Louisville, Kentucky. So please help me welcome Rebecca Duvall-Scott. So on today's podcast, I have the special privilege of talking to my new friend, Rebecca Duvall-Scott. Rebecca and I actually came into contact through um, our publisher that we both use. Um, Rebecca just recently published um, a book that will be available. It's actually available for pre-order now, but um, will be available uh, in March, March the 9th. It's called Sensational Kids, Sensational Families. Hope for Sensory Processing Differences, um, all about her journey with her son, Jacob, and his sensory processing disorder. So um, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, Rebecca. Welcome. Yes, thank you, Lori, for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, we've been able to talk quite a bit about some of the differences and some of the similarities between um, sensory processing disorder and autism and how they're very closely related in in so many ways. Um, So I kind of want to start from the beginning with you um, about Jacob's behaviors and his development that led you to the understanding and the diagnosis of SPD. Okay, Um, well, Jacob was a complete wild child and people joke that their kids are wild, but Jacob was truly out of control. He was incredibly rough. He'd throw his body around and he'd knock into us or furniture or things. He actually ran into walls until he bloodied his lips. He actually tore the curtains down. (laughs) Um, He ran all of the adults so ragged in in our lives that we had to tag team. And so at birthday parties or anything else, one of us always had to be with Jacob while the other one was involved with whatever we were supposed to be doing. And we would tag Mm -hmm. in and out who was on Jacob duty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he wouldn't even sit in a grocery cart. He had little octopus arms that and legs that would grab onto everything and rake things off shelves. And you'd be trying to stuff his arms back in the cart and he barely slept. So that's kind of some of the behavior and the development that 
we had massive issues with from the beginning. And I remember voicing concerns to the doctors. We worked with, you know, every doctor's office has several different doctors. And probably as early as 18 months, I started saying things, you know, that he'd never sit still. And they would say, oh, it's just a boy thing. Uh And then I'd, I'd switch doctors and I'd come back to the other doctor and I'd say, you know, he's really difficult to control. And that one told me that if I'd learn how to effectively discipline, a lot of it would stop. Oh my gosh. Really, really got to me because if they had been listening to me as the mother at all, I was a behavioral therapist for children with autism before having Jacob. So I completely knew how to discipline. (laughs) I mean, but still, who says that? Good Lord. So that that one wasn't good. Um, So I switched to another doctor. And around three years old, I really started pushing for speech therapy. And at that time, he had timed out of um, here in Kentucky, we have first steps that mm-hmm. works with, you know, early childhood intervention. And he didn't even qualify for that because he was already three years old. So I started pushing, pushing for a speech therapy evaluation. And they didn't really even want to give me that because they kept saying I was comparing him to the older daughter, Annabelle, who talked really early and that he's a boy. It always came back to he's a boy. This is how boys are. And I just knew something was off. So um Finally, they gave me a referral, and thankfully, it was the speech therapist that is the one who said, you know, I think this kid has some sensory processing um, challenges going on, and you need to get him into an OT, and that was the beginning kind of of our journey, and uh, when he was diagnosed at three and a half, he had some problems. They said it was some problems in the social participation, balance, and motion, and definite dysfunction in the vision, hearing, touch, body awareness, planning, and idea sales. So that's really how our journey evolved and when we started getting to work. Well, so his, in addition to the behaviors, I guess, and all of those things, what his, his um, communication was lacking as well. He didn't speak until three and a half or four. He tried to speak. And if you were around him all the time, you could decode what he was saying. But um, people who were outside of the immediate family, had no idea what this kid was saying. He ran a hundred miles a minute, even when he was trying to talk. And um, like, I would try to back him up against a wall and get a one word answer out of this kid. And his eyes are darting all over the place and no focus, no being able to attend to me. It was just one thing after another. Gosh, was he ever misdiagnosed um, with having autism? I mean, cause I feel like with a lot of conditions like apraxia, SPD, everyone just kind of calls it autism. And then we as parents are forced to figure out all of the little intricacies of whether it is mainly sensory processing or if there's any element of autism in there. So did you have any of that experience? He was never misdiagnosed. And I think part of it was with me having the background that I did. Mm -hmm. I knew that it wasn't autism because he had the social and the, he was trying to communicate and he was a social kid. So kids usually that have autism are missing the social and communication, you know, in addition to every, in addition to the sensory and other things. Mm -hmm. Um, So they never misdiagnosed him, but through my research, I really kind of learned to think of that pervasive developmental disorder umbrella that you're saying, you know, they throw everything into Mm -hmm. as think of it as a sliding scale. And so at the very low end of the scale, You have your learning disabilities, you have your ADD, it builds into ADHD, it builds into sensory processing disorder, and then up the scale, you're going to start sliding, you know, with more nervous system dysfunction, 
you'll start sliding into the mild autism, the Asperger's, all the way up to the far end of the scale where you have the really severe autism. So when we start thinking of it that way, it's kind of what cocktail did your kid get? Uh -huh. <laughs> what are the different parts that they have? So while we weren't far enough up on the scale to really be considered autistic, the sensory processing disorder was definitely most prevalent. And now that we have done so much intervention and work with him, I kind of feel like we've slid back down the scale where really what we're dealing with, we, we have some mild sensory challenges every once in a while, but it's not anything that we can't manage. It's really um, more the ADHD that we see coming out now, which is still completely manageable. Can you describe for anyone that doesn't really understand truly what sensory processing disorder entails can you give a i mean i know it's a broad it's a very broad definition but can you kind of scale it down and explain really what that means right okay so every person has a sensory processing system so we all understand our five senses you know hearing sight smelling touch vision you've got two other dominant senses that we don't think about your vestibular system um, controls your um, your movement and your proprioceptive system controls, um, oh goodness, how to explain it. It's things that I talk about all the time, but um, your pressure on things and things push, mm -hmm. putting pressure on you. So between all of those senses, you gather all this information through your senses. It goes to your brain. Your brain is computing what's important and what's not important. And then it's outputting a response. So we have... Um, reactions all day long. Like you ask me a question, I'm figuring that out really quickly and I'm forming an answer and I'm outputting my response, right? Well, for sensory kids that have challenges or a malfunctioning nervous system, their senses are either not gathering the information the right way, it's getting mixed up in the brain somehow, or it's outputting the wrong response. So I always thought about it with Jacob as like, your senses travel like cars up your nervous system, up all the roads, and it's jamming his brain. And he was not able to process what he needed to think of as important versus not important. And his behavioral responses were, you know, outputting the wrong ones. And it just, that was the big problem. It's a complete malfunction of your sensory system. Now, it can present in um, seekers and avoiders. And so Jacob would have been deemed a seeker with how he always was exploring his environment and kind of bulldozing through it to get all of this information. And we'd say that his sensory system was hyposensitive. So if you think of it being like a bucket, you couldn't really fill him up. He was always seeking and he would seek through inappropriate ways. He would, you know, that's why he was bouncing off of things and why he was moving a hundred miles a minute. And while he was, uh, my mom actually nicknamed him the Jakeinator, and um, <laughs> and she was one of his Sunday school teachers, and um, with another teacher that teaches outside of church, who completely knew how to handle kids, and um, she called him Captain Destructo because he could destroy the room faster than both of them could catch him. So he was a seeker for sure. On the other end, you have the avoiders. They're the kids or the people that you see that are covering their ears, that um, they wanna wear sunglasses all the time because lights are too bright. Um, they cut their tags out of their clothes. They won't wear socks with seams because their sensory buckets are already so full to the brim, it's spilling over all the time. Mm -hmm. And they can't handle, they're hypersensitive to all of the stimuli around them. 
So does that help you understand it better? Yeah, it, it does. It's a great descriptor. Um, and I, and I like the examples. Um, would you say, you know, in the research that you did, I know you co-wrote the book. Was it with an OT that yes. wrote yes. it with you? Hannah, and is she Jacob's OT? Yes. Hannah Reagan is the one who worked with, um, Jacob and she okay. wrote some complimentary sections in my book, kind of the professional question and answer sections. Oh, gotcha. Um, you know, in the research that you've done and, and just in conversations with her and all the medical professionals over the years, do they say that the, I wouldn't, I hate to say the majority, but it seems like the majority of children on the spectrum have SPD in some form or fashion. I mean, I would definitely say Skylar is every bit a seeker. He doesn't have, he's never had an aversion to noise. He is the loudest kid I've probably ever met who yeah. doesn't speak. <laughs> he's loud with his hands, banging on things and throwing uh -huh. things and swiping things off tables and kind of the, the bulldozing aspect that you mentioned. Um, he's never been an avoider. He's never covered his ears or had a sensory issue with um, clothing or tags or just having clothes on in general or any of those things. Um, yeah. And, and I think a lot of the kids that I know on the spectrum also have either aversions and are avoiders or they tend to have seeker behavior. Um, so would you, would you know anything about that just from talking to professionals or no? Um, yes, I really think that all autistic people have sensory processing challenges, whether they're a seeker, whether they're avoider tendencies, that's definitely part of the autism cocktail. Um, now that's what confused me because when, you know, like I said, I worked with these kids and so mm -hmm. I knew that was part of them, but then here's Jacob that had the other parts that was not autism, but he still definitely had the sensory. And at that point, that's what was so confusing is I didn't understand that it could completely stand alone. And actually it's not a, um, the DSM, the diagnostic you know, manual of disorders, mm -hmm. it's not in the DSM yet. It's not far enough along with the research and everything for them to put it in as its own diagnosis. And that's why it's always thrown under the pervasive developmental disorder umbrella. But I it will be, that. yeah, it will be one day because of course it stands alone. Um, we just, research has to catch up to what other people are already finding out and handling in their own lives. But um, all autistics definitely have sensory processing challenges going on, but there are kids who can hang and just be the sensory processing mm -hmm. without the other parts of the autism. Gotcha. Well, I know that you said that, you know, there are mild um, sensory challenges right now that are manageable for Jacob. Um, what are some of the treatments or therapies and, and things that you've done over the years that you've found have been successful in managing some of his behaviors and some of his inability to process certain situations, um, you know, besides OT and speech? And what specifically with those therapies or outside of those therapies have you done? The biggest thing that we did in addition to OT, which I really feel like OT helped recover the skills that he lost or that was lagging behind when um, he couldn't develop them appropriately, you know, as other kids do, because he was dealing with so much with his sensory system. But um, the big thing that we did and that I feel like everything else is built on is that we did a lot of diet changes and biomedical intervention. So if you think of your nervous system, it's tied to your immune system and it's tied to your gastrointestinal system. So the old adage of you are what you eat is really true. And if you have any allergies to things, a whole lot of autistic families 
go gluten and dairy free. And I knew that from my practice. And that's one of the first things that I implemented with him. And I didn't really understand why it worked at first. I was just doing it because every, all these other families I'd worked with had seen really good benefits. But when we took him and made him gluten and dairy free, he started talking in full legible sentences, not legible, that's writing, but um, full sentences that we could understand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went on to learn that the gut is so connected to the nervous system because your brain actually sees the gluten molecules kind of like opiates. So a lot yep. of autistic people that are um, spinning, flapping, and it's almost like they have behaviors like as if they were high on drugs. If they have the wrong foods in their system that can be reacting that way, it is basically what their bodies are doing with that food. And then dairy, um, the casein molecule in dairy is so molecularly similar to gluten. That's why they're tied together because in your body, they think it's the same thing. And so it reacts to both proteins the exact same way. So once we took him gluten and dairy free, that made a huge difference. And then we took him dye free. And we really found out that the red dye specifically um, would send his behaviors through the roof. But once we fixed that gut and um, we worked with a excellent integrationist that was able to do all of this um, blood testing and things, and he found out that he was deficient in like 16 of 18 of the major vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. And once we got his biology kind of as much back in whack as we could with how he was supposed to be, so much of the behaviors um, cleared up. And that's when the OT could come in and really work to recover some of those skills that he did not develop on time. So it's been it's quite so a it's so remarkable to me. I mean, it's nothing that we know yet, um, but it's just crazy that, you know, I had um, Dr. Krigsman on in the last episode and he's, you know, Skylar's GI doctor. And one of the things he mentioned uh, on the podcast is that, you know, he does not believe and a lot of the medical community does not believe that anyone is born with autism or born with sensory processing disorder or born with these things. It's just as crazy to me along the way where like Jacob became vitamin deficient and, and so many of the internal systems went awry for him and with all the kids on the spectrum, like where and when did that all start to transpire? I wish I knew, you know, I just wish that I could <laughs> kind of just take a microscope and look at him, you know, at my son now and just see all the inner workings going on with him. So we could just go, Oh, that should be connected over there. <laughs> and that, right. you know, that is vitamin deficient there and just help them, you know, that it doesn't take, you know, what Jacob is almost 10. So it, it, it just shouldn't take this long. It makes me sad that it takes this long, that they suffer for so long until we can get the right professionals to help us and to listen to us and not think that we are just poor disciplinaries as parents, <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> it's so, so frustrating and annoying. Yeah. I'm so glad that stuff has helped for him. Absolutely. And, and I will say one of the, one of my favorite quotes that I had read somewhere, it talked about how genetics loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger, which is kind of what you're saying. Yep. And I, I don't want people listening to think, you know, that you can completely fix your kid because they don't really, there's things about them that you can improve like the biology and things like that. But as far as fixing them, I don't really believe in that. And, uh, cause I think a whole lot of it is perfect, you know, the way it is. And I wouldn't trade Jacob and who he is and how he is 
you know, for any other kid, but I wanted to give him his best life and I wanted him to reach the full potential that he could. And so I tried to fix the parts that could be fixed and then, you know, let this kid be the beautiful kid that he is, you know, for the rest of it. But how you're saying about, you know, the environment, that's the big thing. So if you think about all of the pollution that we have, that's overloading, you know, the, the nervous systems. If you're thinking of all of the metals that they get exposed to, that has Hormones something to do with Hormones in our food. <laughs> yes. And if you think of all of the food modifications that they do now, which I understand is to try to help feed more people and all these things, but they're changing it so fast that our bodies cannot keep up with the changes. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're seeing this plethora of autoimmunity. I mean, the autism, the autoimmunity, the allergies, the asthma, I mean, all of it is interrelated because mm-hmm. the gut and the nervous system and the immune system are so tightly tied together and functioning. You're clearly passionate about it. And obviously I not am. just because you live it, but because of just being a behavioral therapist as well. I mean, it's kind of been your life's work. And then, you know, having a child with issues too, um, is that why you decided to write a memoir or, you know, tell us a little bit about why you felt it was important to share your story and Jacob's story with everyone. Well, I just think it's a whole lot like how you already said that the doctors, the therapists, other families, people who do not realize what this really is all about. And it's trying to get information out there and try to help turn that tide so that we can really be more preventative rather than just reacting all the time. And I had, when he got diagnosed, no one in my family, no one in my friend circle, no one knew about sensory processing. I didn't understand it. And as I started researching, I started blogging on Facebook and trying to explain it to my family and friends kind of in this closed page. Well, people started finding out about it. And I started getting friend requests from all over the place wanting to follow Jacob's story and follow all of the interventions we were doing and how it was affecting him and everything. And it was after tons of people said, you know, you need to put all this information in one place so that they can have it, that it kind of turned into. I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always figured I'd write fiction. (laughs) Ironically, I never (laughs) thought I'd write about my life. But um it's really kind of the survival, the one-stop shop survival book of what worked for us and all the different ideas. It's really meant to be a springboard for people, you know, to take it and inspire them to go and look in every place, you know, leave no rock under, over, you know, no rock not turned over. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just that survival guide that I wish I had when he was diagnosed, that somebody could have hated me and said, this is what worked for me. You know, maybe something in it can help you in your journey. Well, and I am pleased to say that I have an advanced copy or a part of a copy. (laughs) So (laughs) what I have read already, I mean, it is a phenomenal book. So I highly encourage anyone that's listening, um, to go and get the book on Amazon. Um, I will link up the Amazon link to um, the page as well. It it is so helpful to not only have very detailed stories and explanations from Rebecca and her family, but also to have, like you mentioned before, Hannah's uh, pieces of the OT perspective um, and treating Jacob and other kids similar to him. Um, I think when Skylar first started to show signs of, he was extremely hypotonic. So there were a lot of sensory issues with him from the get-go, but before we had our autism diagnosis, 
I looked up, it had been tossed around, gosh, back then, like 2006, about sensory processing. I don't even think they called it a disorder at the time. I think they just said issues with processing things um, and the body's slow to respond. And I looked and looked high and low for books or for any type of information and research on that. And I found one book and, and it right. talked about loud noises and all of those things. But that particular um, perspective in that book did not match what I was seeing. So I immediately dismissed it and thought, well, you know, he doesn't cover his ears with loud noises and, you know, like we mentioned before, doesn't have the clothing sensitivities and wants to be naked all the time and all of that stuff. So I just dismissed it. And it's, there's so much that's come out now that I just think your book is so helpful because it provides the other side of sensory processing disorder that I don't think is represented very well in right. the market right now. So yeah, I appreciate you writing it. <laughs> well, and that's, it's really, I appreciate that. Thank you, Lori. Um, it's really the seekers get mislabeled as the behavior kids. They're the mm -hmm. ones that are put into the behavior classrooms. They're the ones, oh, this kid is oppositional defiant. So they call it all these other things where really it's the other side of sensory processing. So, you know, you got your avoider, you got your seeker. And so the avoiders stick out, right? Yep. That's what everybody says. Well, that's the sensory processing. But the seekers is just the other side of the coin. And most, it's interesting to me that your Skylar is all seeker and that you don't see any type of avoiding because a lot of the time while they're dominant one or the other, they occasionally will have, a, you know, a couple of traits thrown in of the other side. And mm -hmm. sometimes that changes and that's what makes it such a shadowy kind of <laughs> disorder to get a grip on. Because while Jacob's a dom dominant seeker with a couple of avoiding traits, we'll have days where he is full on avoider. He wants his noise cancellation headphones and he wants the lights off, you know, and, uh, and he's rather calm and not being a seeker. So it's just how that nervous system is functioning, you know, at that time. Do you find that um, when he was identified more as a seeker and you were really getting into the, the, the depths of sensory processing disorder that he was potentially um, given AD or could have been given ADHD meds because I feel like kind of what you said a minute ago that a lot of times the seekers are the ones that are, you know, in the behavioral classrooms and um, I think mislabeled as having ADD, ADHD, and then they just kind of toss some medication at them and, you know, hope to calm them down that way. And that's not the answer a lot of times. Absolutely. So, yes. I think that they can be misdiagnosed very quickly, especially in a classroom setting, which we're lucky because we chose to homeschool. So I don't have to deal with him trying to sit in a chair for seven hours a day or to walk in a line. And not that we don't work on those skills, we do. He has plenty of socialization. We're part of a co-op. He goes to a small um, cottage school on Fridays now. So he has those opportunities now that he's older and he's ready to handle them. But at a young age, specifically, if I had tried to put him in a classroom, they would have definitely pushed meds from day one. Now, I will tell you, he is on just a very light dose of ADHD medicine, but mm -hmm. it's the very last intervention that we did. We did everything with his biology to get it back in whack first. We did three and a half years of OT to recover all the skills that we could. And then even homeschooling and having the optimal classroom, you know, for this type of kid, um, even then, he was still struggling to get through his work in a timely manner and to be able to focus 
and you could, he could feel, he was getting old enough that he could tell me how he was feeling, that his mind was jumping back and forth between subjects and he couldn't focus on this math problem right now. And uh, so it was one of the last things that we did was put him on a very mild dose of an ADHD medicine that we only give him for, you know, Monday through Friday when he's doing his schoolwork. And that has worked really well for us. Well, that's good that you have a, a strong enough relationship with your provider to be able to, you know, talk through all the decisions too. I, you know, I highly encourage any parent that goes to any medical provider at all to ask questions. And I, I would not care if you were in that room 45 minutes to an hour. You need to ask every question about every idea that they throw out at you, medication, um, therapy, just any suggestion, and just not take it for them, them having a medical license to be able to tell you what you need to do and you need to do exactly that without asking any specifics about side effects or long-term prognosis or anything like that. That's something else that Dr. Krigsman mentioned on his, on his episode with me last week is that you know, the, most of the medical community are kind of trained, I mean, and we know this just going to the doctors ourselves, that you're in and you're out. The patient presents for a certain problem, whether it's the flu, whether it's heart pressure medicine or blood pressure medicine, any of those kind of things, they go in, they tackle that one problem and then they're out. And when a kid like Skylar or Jacob presents and they're bouncing all over the walls and they're kind of going crazy, the doctors are overwhelmed and they don't really, they want to get us out of there because we're, right. we're causing havoc with the system and you know, getting all the patients in and out in a timely fashion and we take too long. And um, that's not a provider I want to go to. And, right. and like you said in the beginning, I think you, you, know, you went to several to get the diagnosis and to get some help. You just have to, you know, you, you hate to feel like you're a doctor jumping, but if it's your kid's sanity in your sanity, <laughs> I think it's worth it to keep going and asking other parents who they go to and getting referrals and just getting as much assistance as you can get instead of yes. tackling it on your own. Yes. And I talk about it a little bit in the book, especially where Hannah was concerned about having the right therapist client fit and parent in their fit. You know, Hannah and I had to fit together a certain way and she had to work well with Jacob. We had to work together very well as a trio, but the doctors, especially I jumped around quite a bit. And I think I came to the realization that we all think that they know everything because they do have a medical license and to really be sitting there, the, what broke it with the last doctor, um, the ones that I was telling you about that I had all the issues with at the beginning, just trying to get him into speech therapy and other things. What broke it was even after he was diagnosed and I went back and said, you know, oh, the OT says it's sensory processing disorder. We're going to take him off of gluten and dairy. They said that wouldn't help. They completely discouraged the whole idea that diet has anything to do with the nervous system. And that was the day where it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm done with this and I'm going to find somebody who's going to listen to me as the mom and help me figure some things out. So um, I did exactly what you said. I started asking people, where do you go? Who do you like? This is what I'm dealing with. This is the type of doctor I'm looking for. And at that time, lucky enough, I was already in with the integrationist and I was looking for, he just covered um, the special part, you know, with all the biomedical, um, but I needed to take him somewhere closer to home, you know, just for the basic pediatrician stuff. And I finally found a doctor that I didn't know at the time, but he went to school with the integrationist. And it became this beautiful partnership between the three of us that, you know, um, his name is Dr. Camber. And he said, I don't know everything about this and I will learn it with you. 
And to me, I'm sold. <laughs> I will stay with you as long as you're in practice because to have a doctor admit and to learn with you was a wonderful thing for us. And because he personally knew the integrationist and they had gone to school together, he was happy to let Dr. Page deal with most of what we're going to do with Jacob from a biological level. And he was like, yeah, just tell him to send me all the test results so I can see what you all are doing and understand about it. And anything else that I needed through a pediatrician, he's completely open-minded and has worked with me every step of the way. So searching and searching and searching until you find the right fit is so important for you and the kid. Yes, for sure. I, I, I could not agree more. Um, well, now that you know, it sounds like there's many more good days than bad days. Um, what is the family time like, you know, for you guys now? I know your daughter, Annabelle, is uh, 12. And, um, and your husband, Eric, obviously is very involved as well with everything going on in the house. So what do you guys do for fun that you can all do? Um, and, you know, some of those things. And, and how has Annabelle been through this transition of, I'm sure her brother was really not easy to be around. And then now maybe they, I, I think I've seen some pictures and videos um, on Facebook of the, the two of them on the computer together and like spending time together, which you probably thought back in the day would never happen. So <laughs> what is life like now for you guys? Yeah. Well, Annabelle is a remarkable child. And um, I think I just really lucked out with her as the sibling. I've always told her, you know, God knows exactly who to pick for these kids and that, you know, she was meant to be part of the family and the big sister and the daughter. And from day one, um, she was like the mini therapist. She went to all of the therapy sessions with me. She learned everything that I learned. There were times that Eric and I would be so tired and stressed out and just kind of done with it. And she would sense it. And she would say, hey, Jacob, this is when they're really small, you know, like four and six. Hey, Jacob let's go play with your heavyweight bottles. Or, hey, Jake, go get in the swing. I'll push you. And she would know what to do to help him calm down and give us a break when we didn't even ask her. So she's an amazing kid all the way around. Um, but that's not to say there was not any hard patches ever and that there isn't any more. Every family, you know, you live together 24-7. We all have different personalities and, um, you know, we all got to work together. But our family especially has stressed communication and um, between me and Eric, between Eric and the kids, between me and the kids, between Anna and Jacob, we communicate all the time. When we start having a problem, let's start talking about what's going on, how we're feeling, why it's happening, how we can find a solution. And I think a lot of families just don't do that for whatever reason. You know, they get upset and it just festers and they never come back and try to resolve it. But um, life now is really good. and. Uh, they love to do experience-based things together. So like when we went to our last vacation, the big thing we did two or three times was indoor skydiving. And they thought that was the best thing ever. Um, they like to zip line. They like to, you know, play outside together. Anna loves to do engineering things. She's built a big swing ride in our backyard and swings out front. And they get into all sorts of things together. And some of it's mischievous, but... <laughs> You know, <laughs> kids will be kids. <laughs> that's what brothers and sisters are for. And they'll tease each other and say, you know, oh, they don't like each other, this and that. But really, they're the tightest, closest siblings, you know, that I've ever really known. And um, it's just, we're just having a lot of fun now. We, we finally got to the place where SPD is not hijacking our lives. And that's all <laughs> we think about. So we're on the other side of that. 
and since um, she's also homeschooled, where the three of us are together 24-7, you know, with everything that we do. And so we're all just really close. And then Eric has always been a wonderful support. And um, I was telling you a little bit, you know, earlier that I wanted him to be involved at the beginning um, to the depth that I was involved. I wanted him reading all of the books, researching with me, talking to the doctors. And he, he would go um, to doctor's appointments with me, but finally, you know, he's taking care of everything else. He's taking care of all the finances, the household, everything. And he finally told me, you know, I can't do everything to the depth that you're doing it, but I want you to take care of this part and just tell me what I need to do to support you. And that goes back to our communication. Once I understood how he was thinking and feeling about things, I understood what I needed to do to um, pull our family together in a better way. So it all goes back to communication for us. I think that's so smart and so great that you guys had that even early on and that you're very openly communicating. I mean, I've heard it from so many other families that have shared stories with me. Um, it's easy to end up having resentment towards your spouse if you feel like you're doing everything and carrying the brunt of all of the the SPD side of things and, you know, getting the brunt of taking him to the grocery store and having him wreak havoc and you're exhausted and you can't sleep. And then, you know, your spouse goes outside of the home to work all day and then kind of have a normal life and a normal day. And then they come home and you want to unload and they're tired too. And right. it just, it ends a lot of marriages. It, it just is a horrible, you know, situation for a lot of families. It, it's just not for the weak when you have any type of special needs scenario in your family. So the communication is huge. For, yes. for a family. I could yes. not agree more. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. it's difficult. Some days you don't want to talk at all. Some days I don't feel like speaking at all, but <laughs> right. I, I, think, I feel like Josh and I at this point know each other just by looking at each other, like the facial expressions each of us make. We know right. we either need a minute to just, you know, debrief with ourselves and then we're fine. But, you know, <laughs> we just kind of know each other's hobbling, I guess. So that's good. It works for us. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's um, got to find, you know, they're normal. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I wanted to maybe kind of close with um, you talking a little bit more about your book and maybe sharing um, some of your favorite parts of the book or a favorite story or a favorite quote or something like that, just to kind of, kind of wrap things up. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I wrote it. So of course there's so many parts of it that I just love <laughs> that are so close to my heart. But I think my favorite part has to be when um, I'm writing about how he went through integrative listening therapy. It's a special type of therapy where he wore headphones and it played modulated music. And um, the second round of it actually had bone conduction where it was vibrating um, the bone up in his skull. And what it actually does, the integrative listening therapy, um, it, it builds more neural pathways in the brain. So <clears throat> this was back when he was still three or four years old and he was still pretty severe with the SPD. And it was like a country road of a brain where there was only a couple of pathways for information to travel, which was why it was getting jammed so frequently and outputting the wrong responses. And through these two rounds of listening therapy, it took a couple of months but it actually grew new neural pa neural pathways in the brain so that it had more room for the information to travel, opened it all up. But um, during that time, before I really understood what it was doing, 
he completely got disorganized. So here we're starting this new thing that Hannah's like, it's going to be great. This is one of the best things that we can do for an SPD kid. And I take him home, we do a couple of sessions, and he is falling apart at the seams. <laughs> so I'm coming back to Hannah and I'm like, what just happened? Why is he reacting this way? I thought this was gonna make it better. And this is the favorite part um, that I will never forget. And it's in the <laughs> book is a really special quote, but she said, it's like putting together a puzzle. It looks neat in the box, but to see the cohesive picture, you have to dump out all the pieces, sort and organize them and put them back together. And when you first dump them out, it's overwhelming chaos. But as it comes back together, you can see the picture emerge. And when it's finished, it's marvelous. And that just solidified for me. It was such a beautiful way to express what he was going through. Because here we we had put him into this listening therapy. We had started OT. We started biomedical. And it's like we took this puzzle of a kid and we dumped him all out. And he was completely falling apart at the seams, we were changing everything. His whole life was changing, his routines, everything we expected of him was changing. But we were going through this process of reorganizing those pieces and we could start seeing as pieces came together that it's going to be a beautiful picture and it's gonna be okay at the end. So that's another reason why we wanted to write the book. You know, both of us um, were passionate about it because we want other families to experience that hope and inspiration of don't give up, but keep looking and rule it in, rule it out but do everything you can to get that kid back together and it's going to be marvelous in the end. So that's probably my very favorite part. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I love that. I'm just looking at my arm with uh, my tattoo with puzzle pieces and Skylar's face and <laughs> all that. on. I'm like, yes, it is a very beautiful picture. <laughs> yes. I love, I love that analogy. That's, that's, Perfect. You know, um, I didn't even think of it that the puzzles, you know, relates to the autism because that's kind of the symbol for it. And I'm sure she didn't think of it at the time, but it is a beautiful fit. <laughs> it is. See, my mind always goes straight to autism, you know, right. it's just kind of my life. <laughs> right. So, oh gosh. Well, Rebecca, thank you so very much for sharing your story and telling everyone about, you know, a little bit more about SPD. And um, I'm so excited for your book. I've already pre-ordered it. I cannot wait to get it and read it all. Again, for everyone listening, I will link um, the Amazon um, order link uh, web, web address for the book, but it's again called Sensational Kids, Sensational Families, Hope for Sensory Processing Differences. So um, thank you so much. Everyone look out for the book and go ahead and pre-order it as soon as possible. I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. So thank you, Lori. Absolutely. We'll take care and we will be talking soon. I'm sure. Okay. See you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of living the sky life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the living the sky life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Skylife with others. Thanks again for listening.